This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Jason Gardner. Jason is the Applications and Technology Facilitator at Populous. In this episode, our main topic is the people side of the business when it comes to implementing technology in an architectural practice, including the personal experience of clients, the internal design team, and sporting event fans in the context of technology used to solve problems and deliver architectural projects, the impacts of more tech versus less tech on the people who work in the practice, how their technology team goes about implementing tech in an international design firm, how Populous goes beyond architecture in the services they offer, and so much more. This was a fantastic conversation with Jason. And I hope you'll not only find value in it for yourself, but that you'll help add value to the profession by sharing it with your network. In addition to leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, it's the smallest thing that you can possibly do to support this show and to help broaden the reach of conversations like these in my attempt to elevate the industry. I would also appreciate you visiting the sponsors who help make this episode possible. Thanks so much. And without further ado, I bring you Jason Gardner. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you again. Thanks, Evan. It's great to be here. So we just saw each other in Anaheim, and I think before that, when was it, October? It was October of 2021. In Kentucky, right? Yeah. So that was that was fantastic. We met at the Confluence Conference, so shout out to Randall and Jim for uh, introducing us via that conference. Yeah, it was yep. great. And you presented there. One of the, well, the theme for, I guess, that conference was reality capture. And you had a different take on reality capture. I did. <laughs> so in, in traditional, you know, technology terms, reality capture is augmented reality, mixed reality, 3D scanning, VR, like all, all the realities is, is what I like to call it. Just there, there's so many of them all of a sudden. Yes. Uh, so, but, but reality, reality, I think is more what, what your topic was. So maybe maybe give a little bit of an intro to that because I can see the path of the conversation we're about to go down. And the way I'm going to frame it now is I want to talk about why we do what we do. And then we'll talk about how you do what you do. All right. Because I think it makes sense to start with why. So let's do a little breakdown of, of what your, your talk was and, and then we'll just see where this goes. Yeah. So my, my talk at Confluence this past year uh, was really around the experience. Um, of the reality, right? And it's using the technology to drive fan experience, to drive design experience, to drive client experiences. Um, and I, it's sometimes that, you know, the, the reality of it is that the technology isn't the solution. It's, it's thinking about our, our, our end goal, right? 
and then moving backwards from it. If you know what the end is that you want to produce, whether it's an event or a stadium or an arena, whatever it is, you're going to find the right solution to fill that void. And I think a lot of people tend to look at the technology first and drive that. And we look at it, I look at it um, for our practice and our clients and for our events the other way. And I think that was the, the, the tail I was trying to get to with Confluence. And I think we had a pretty interesting group of people. We had industry, we had young minds and students from University of Kentucky who really had been looking at things one way. Um, and it was very evident after the meeting. And my whole point was to say, look, you can't focus on one thing. I think if you're going to focus on reality or experiences or technology, you can't look at it. And I, I use this analogy as like a pirate, right? Through like a telescope, right? If you if you look at it like a bird watcher with both eyes open, you're going to see the best thing moving forward. And that was kind of my point with the reality of it is that there's a lot of things you just can't look at with one eye open. Interesting. And I would, I would posit to say that, you know, you said that you kind of start with kind of dis- defining where you're going to go and, and then solving for that by reverse engineering it for lack of a better term. And, and I actually think that's the only way you can never get somewhere is to know where you're going. Because if you don't know where you're going, you could go any way. There's so many like famous quotes about this, right? <laughs> if, if you don't know where you're going, how do you know you're ever going to get there? Things like that. So that is the architectural project in a nutshell, right? Thinking about it as an architect and you're a technologist at Populous. So maybe give a, give a background of what Populous is about, what you guys do, and, and then what your role is there. Yeah, so Populous is a global design firm. Um, we do everything from events to stadiums to arenas to, um, you know, we, there's just airports. We have so many different range of projects that we do for our clients. Um, we've done over 3000 projects in 35 years. Um, and we've done over $40 billion in revenue. And so, I mean, to look at the the breadth of our work, right. Um, and that is for me as a, as a technology person, you know, I've been here a little over 12 years now and I get to see and experience and help. I think the, the top down, bottom up, as well as our clients in areas that I would never, ever thought I would ever be experiencing. And to me, that's the, the coolest part about my role at the company is I get, I get to sit at the table and every table basically, and, and be a, a fly on the wall and say, well, hang on, a, you know, raise my hand up, you know, nicely and say, what if, I think that was the, the thing we took away Evan from Confluence is, you know, what if versus no, right. I think that's where populace is such a really progressive company that we're always looking at the next way of doing it, the next evolution of doing it, the, the what if scenarios um, from a stadium to a design to an event and a technology point of view. It, the word no isn't what we focus on. We focus on what if and how and why kind of to kind of take a full circle there. But that's that's really what I'm experiencing and what I'm helping drive here. But yeah, so for three regions, um, almost 800 employees, um, we are a very large evolving company daily. Yeah. It, it, the, the, well, a lot of architects have a what if mindset, but I don't think they're enabled by their company to have that mindset everywhere, right? Throughout the whole process. I think internally in a lot of firms, my experience is there are a lot of um, compromises made before anything even gets shown to a client. It's like, no, they'll never, they'll never choose that. No. You know, and we do the thinking for them for some reason, 
And that doesn't make any sense to me, right? And so what's interesting to me is this idea that populace has this kind of what-if mindset. So how does that permeate through the staff? Like, how, where does that come from? And and how do you guys always hang on to that? Because, I mean, there's so much pressure in industry today to clamp down on things, to make things more efficient, make things more productive. And that's kind of at the antithesis of what if, right? Because what if is kind of open, open-ended, right? So tell me, tell me kind of how you guys square that all up at Populous. So it's a, it's a really good question because, you know, uh, from our leadership down, it's very open design platform, right? And they want you to use the best tool process, whatever it is to get the best result, right? Um, and that's great in the design world. Sometimes that is a, a struggle. It's hard to manage from a technology role, I would imagine. Oh, it's very difficult. I mean, in terms of the, our, our budgets and what people want to use, we got to kind of streamline like, okay, well, there's 14 softwares on the market that do X, or there's, you know, 10 different tools that do Y. And so what do we have access to? How can they use it? Right. And what is their goal? And this, this goes back to the goal, right? Is that if you have a goal to produce something, we're like, oh, well, have you ever used that before? And they're like, no, but we want to try it. I'm like, okay, great. You can try it. But ultimately you have to produce something, right? And so the from the top down bottom drive of how we use tech, the leadership has said, look, we, we will help you be as productive as possible. And then you look at the inverse at the bottom of the production process, right? And you have to start putting in standards and process. And this is going back to your comment earlier about they want to streamline things, right? And we streamline things through our collaboration conversations, right? And each project can evolve a little bit and do their own thing, but we've got our own process and everybody kind of figures what those are. From a design standpoint, it's not, it's not, a, it's not like a, a wild, wild west by any means. It's a very structured, open platform. But what I find so inc- incredibly uh exciting here is that we get so many new people that start here right and everyone has an idea and those ideas start at the bottom of people who are doing the work and i get to sit in rooms and listen to people and have conversations that not everybody gets to have and i get to hear those things i'm like oh that's actually a really good idea whether you've been here for two weeks two months ten years the experiences that you have of the work you've done need to be shared whether they've they ended up good or bad and that's kind of where I get to come in and talk with the, the staff and say, hey, you're a new, new hire and you've done things at firms for the past 10 years. What have you done? What can I learn from you? And that's really driven our culture is that it's open and in a way that we listen to the people who come in, whether they're new or old, um, seasoned, I guess that's the better word, right? Um, like us, right? And your experiences, whether it, whether in whatever it is, drive your processes. And we've, we've actually found that, um, I think a great example of that is, um, you know, when we looked, used AutoCAD years and years and years ago, right? Color drove us to make decisions or pause on decisions, right? And so when you, when you were drawing in AutoCAD, uh, a layer was a certain color. and if it was a certain layer, it meant depth or a certain element, right? And you made decisions around that. What's interesting, and this is where I think a lot of the industry is struggling, is that we work in black and white now, right? Revit is a good example of that. Whereas then you go into 
Rhino or Inkscape or Unreal or whatever, and there's color, right? And so it's it's weird that we kind of design in color and produce in 2D white, right? For the most part. And so what's interesting is that our conversations with people are shifting back to color in everything that we do, whether it's uh, UI UX, whether it's um, 2D line weights in our production process, whether it's our conversations with our clients, whether it's um, VE with the contractor, we're, we're starting to bring back that word color in our experiences and color drives an action or pauses on an action. And that's been really, really exciting to kind of see some, I'll call it go back to the future a little bit, right? In terms of how people view what we used to do and how we used to do it and how more efficient it was. And so that's been kind of this really interesting, like last six, eight months is to kind of so many new people here and so many new ideas. It's been hard to kind of wrangle them into what we want to do. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's just an exciting time right now. There's so many new people. There's so many new ideas. There's so many new tools, so many. The, the new tools things is also a scary thing. Like you could follow Twitter and every single day there's six new master planning design softwares. There's 10 new Rhino scripts. There's, you know, 25 new plugins for a design software. And that also gets you in trouble. If you're always looking at the next shiny thing, you can get yourself into trouble really quickly. If you're like, Ooh, I want to use that. Ooh, I want to use that. Right. Without understanding what the goal is of its use. And I think that's um, where I go back to our event stuff is that we get to break, like there isn't any software on the market for our event work. Like honestly, there's not any software on the market for stadium design. Right. Everything we have, everything we've done, we've either built it ourselves or we, you and every other firm out there. Right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> we've either bought it and, and modified it or built it. Right. And the event practice is no different. Like there, there's like two event products on the market that do event master planning at like an Olympic level, but nothing, nothing that we do and how deep we go into um, the routes that the fan takes to get to their seat or the route a bus takes to, to get to the parking lot or how do we get people in to the stadium and how long it takes to get them into the stadium. I mean, it's kind of like a 4d construction planning software, kind of an idea, but at a different scale, right? Because you're talking about crowds and you're talking about lines and bathrooms and concessions and checking in and security and all those things that a lot of that is not on a construction site. Right. Oh, hundred percent. And it was funny is that, um, the past four years of working with the like on site with the event teams through Super Bowl, Olympics, Final Fours, we have we have this thing called pivot, right? And it's like it's our word we live by, right? Be in the shadow, but also pivot. And what happens is you can't always trust that technology is always going to work, and so you have to fall back on things. And you got Plan B, right? And I think it, my favorite experience was there was some technology that didn't work, and we we were trying to figure out the, the time that it took to get people into the into the stands. Right. We didn't want to like hand out things to people to like, Hey, hold this and then give it to the, the attendant when you get checked in. Right. Like we wanted to take it out of their hands. Right. And so we had these balloons that were like staked out on the, these markers every 50 to hundred feet. And so you'd, you'd pick a person out that would be by a balloon and you hit a stopwatch and you'd watch them like a hawk, right? Like a bird. When they got there, you'd stop it. Right. So technology is, uh, good, bad, ugly, right? It doesn't matter what the tech is. That, well, stopwatch is good technology, 
right? It's all in how you use it. I think that's the key that Populous has helped me grow is that you can use whatever you want, right? Whenever you want, build whatever you want, help us however you want, but it has to have a value to it, right? And the value could be to our staff, could be to our ownership, could be to our clients, could be to fans. Um, and that's the part that I have to be really careful about is that I don't throw too much at too, too many people, right? And I also don't look for the next thing. It's why is it needed, right? Yep. I, I want to get to this whole event thing. I think it's fascinating that you your firm does helps clients run and plan events and execute events because in the role of an architect or a firm that isn't a typical right like that you guys are continuing the relationship beyond the building right so i think i want to get there but before we go there i want to hunker down stay in this part about what you do um you mentioned earlier that you you're kind of at all of the tables you're you're at the staff table you're at the tech table you're at the client table and so Maybe you can just explain a little bit more about what that means, because I don't think it, this is another thing that I don't think happens a lot, which is having a tech guy at the client table. And I get why. I mean, I totally get why you're there. I mean, you're the one who's doing the vetting. You're, you're, you're helping, you're sucking it all up like a sponge when you're sitting there with a client about the problems they're trying to solve. And you have the biggest amount of knowledge about what the tools are and what they can do. And then you get to kind of design the process as far as the tech side goes. So maybe just just go a little deeper into that so that people can understand. Because I think there's a huge value here. And not, not enough firms are, are doing this. And, and to me, it makes tons of sense. But it's also kind of sounds kind of luxurious, right? Because Populous is a big firm and not every firm can afford i'm using my famous podcasting air quotes to put a uh what is typically seen as a technologist which it would i think a lot of people think of as a support role and and this is support but it's also kind of proactive support instead of reactive support so give us give us a window into what that's like yeah so my my role right when i started here or i've been at you know five firms over my career you know, they looked at it first as a tech role, as a support role, as a BIM role, right? And those all are fine, but I think that you miss out on the knowledge or the passion that I think that your support staff, your technical staff, whether you're in IT or whether you're in marketing, whether you're in accounting, I'll call it overhead role, right? I think that everybody has a passion and my passion was R&D. And I started being able to, my background is architecture first um, um, and uh, technology second. My father worked for Hallmark for 35 years. So I kind of got to play in the tech world when I was a kid here in in Kansas City. And then uh, I wanted to be an architect. Well, I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. And I was like, well, that's not what I want to do, but I like to draw. So I went into architecture um, and then I got into residential architecture, got my own company partnership, and then I evolved to where I am today, but all that kind of was a, a spearhead of the tech, right? And that was my passion was it kind of funneled out of that. And now my passion is the research of the tech and why it's needed. Um, but, at, but at Populous specifically, my, my role started out as just, you know, help the staff, right? Produce and deliver work. 
but through conversations and through the ability to communicate to leadership and being in client meetings for design processes, I was hearing a different thing. And I took a moment to talk to leadership about what I heard versus what others heard and provide an opportunity for how to do something that wasn't really the norm. So let me pause for just a moment there, because also being director of digital practice at HMC, coming from a design background and architect myself, we're just problem solvers. Like I kind of don't care what the problem is. And the idea of somebody in tech or somebody in whatever role, it it doesn't matter in, in the firm. If you, if you're trained as an architect, you think like an architect and you're just there to solve problems. And instead of just being reactive all the time, putting out fires and like trying to make people more productive. And it's like, yeah, those are, those are great side effects of, of the drive of trying to solve problems. And I think like architects are so valuable in those positions. Yeah. I think that the, the proactive, sorry, the reactiveness is helpful because you know how to solve the problem. But I think that the value that I bring, the value that my team brings is that we're being in front of it. We have to be, I think the the best quote that I've been told by Earl Santee here was, Jason, I want you to be on the leading edge of, of technology and make our company on the leading edge. Don't bleed us, lead us, right? And to me, that's been, I think, something that's stuck with me for the past 10, 12 years is he has the, the trust. I think that's the biggest key word for me is that I've been here for 12 years because they trust me. I've never led them down a path that they couldn't rely on. The result, it, there may be three or four reasons why to do something, and there may be three or four results out of a conversation. The, the, it's their choice to pick which one they want to go down, but none of them let us down a path of bad. And I think that's the biggest key word is that they trust me, I trust them, the, the value add, right, uh, of being in front of it. Because if I can sit in a room with a client, I think this is the point you're trying to make about being in the tables, right? Is that I can sit in a room and listen and I can have three or four ideas about what is possible in the moment versus saying, okay, great. That's great. I'm going to go do some research. I'll get back to you in a week. Right. That's where I think I have to sit in the, in the, the company in the Americas region specifically is that I have to be able to answer within 20 minutes right? Whether they ask me to do that or not, that's not the point. It's that I know that the only way we're ever going to show value, right? Is that if we are the ones who have the answers, not go research an answer. You may research a design process and make sure it's validated, right? But a solution, an idea has to be in the moment. And I think that's where I'm working to show whether it's the the employee table, the operations table, the owner table, the fan table, right? Is that there has to be a reason in the moment to do something and why to do it. And I got, I've got a lot of examples of that from working with the event projects, you know, Super Bowl this past year in, in SoFi, you know, you have to pivot because things happen, right? And what are you going to do about it? You get put in situations that they, the client relies on you to have a solution. So real quick, before you jump into this, because I, I, we're getting to that other part that that we definitely want to talk about, and I just want to set it up correctly. So so no, no, no apologies. So the, the idea here is that you, Populous, facilitate 
you tell me the right words here because I don't know what they are, but you are helping a Super Bowl happen. And the, the stadium's already done. It's already built. Like, so this is beyond past architecture, right? This is after architecture. So tell, set that up so that, so that you can tell this story. Yeah. So one of the greatest things that our company offers is the event planning and coordination, right? And we get to help our clients, whether that is the stadium client, whether that is a uh, NCAA, FIFA, Olympics, uh, MLB, um, any of those are our clients. They're partners. Honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't like to call them clients. I look at them as partnerships, friendships. I think this is so, so interesting because you guys are like, let's say you probably didn't even design the stadium. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Right. But, but you're actually helping them use their facility to the fullest. And I think like that's better than like an operations manual for a building, right? It's like you're, you're holding their hand, helping them be as successful as possible with this gigantic thing that they, this asset that they own, right? So that it can generate revenue for them. So I, I just wanted to do, go down a little digression there, but continue, continue. Yeah. So that, that's a good point is that, that they, they own and they use for normal operations, right? And the, the events that we host and help host there are, on a scale of 10 times what a normal event is, right? I mean, take SoFi last year as a great example. We didn't design that stadium, but we hosted a Super Bowl in it, right? The event is bigger than the field and the stadium. Way bigger. The event is literally <laughs> when you come on the property. Right. right? It's like it has to be way out at the, like oh, where the fence the is. Security the security perimeter street. is like immense, right. right? And what's interesting is it takes sometimes uh, a couple of years, 18 months to design the process um, based on some, some research. And then the game happens. I mean, the Super Bowl happens in six hours, yeah, right? That's it's like, it's, it takes all that time to get ready and then boom, it's done. It takes 30 or 40 days to build up the Super Bowl. Final four, it takes a month to build up that thing. Um, my favorite event, um, the past five years is an event that just happened last year, um, Field of Dreams. It is on another level for many of us here at the practice. Um, because if you've ever watched the Field of Dreams movie, you understand what I'm talking about. What I don't think people realize is that thing had the highest baseball TV audience in 15 years. Right. And this is a, originally it was designed as a one-off game, Right. That was going to happen. Um, hit COVID hit, right? But then it did happen. And the viewership, the if you look at, like, if you were out there on site and people that couldn't come to the game but came to the movie set where the house is just to throw a ball with their kid, right? Like, on another level of an experience. Um, and people who you didn't even know were playing catch with each other. Like, that was just so cool to watch. Um, and then to watch Kevin Costner show up and do his thing and then have the fans react and you know, at every level, whether you're, whether you're 90 years old or you're five years old, right? And this is where I think the technology that we offer as a practice that I have to help with and the way that we look at the tech, right? I think we have an obligation to use tech to help create new fans, right? How you use technology to design something is one way. How you use technology, and this goes back to the experience discussion, right? AR, VR, XR, MR, add an R to whatever you want, right? The reality of it is all in how you use the technology, right? And 
through Zoom, you know, during COVID, we all had different experiences and different realities of things. If you take that kind of stuff now and you look at, okay, where are, where are fans going to be in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years? How are they going to react to things? Where is the value? Is the value in the stadium? Is the value online? Is the value in the middle? Is the value in the metaverse? Like nobody really knows right now, right? But for me, I get to sit in a really interesting place and find a way to drive the fan experience, the client experience, the design experience, um, or at least support it, right? And that's been really cool for this past three or four years is to see the event practice kind of have really a big paintbrush to kind of do whatever is needed, which is kind of fun. And it kind of reminds me of like the VFX or the movie, let's just call it the movie industry. Like they'll just make whatever they need to make the final output happen, you know? And I think traditionally architecture was kind of like that, right? It's like just rolls and rolls of trace, it's models. It's like you would just get, you, you, how many times in school where you build the model, right? When we, back when we built physical models and the professor, the professor would be like, just flips it over and like, well, have you looked at it this way? Right. And it was like mind blown, right? Right then for, for the students. And that's kind of how I feel like the movie industry is, right? It's like, just, there are no rules. You, you do what you need to do to, to do the thing. And, and th there was a, a post on LinkedIn that, that kind of blew my mind. And I think you saw this one as well. We probably talked about it was the, the soccer, um, the tracking of all of the players on the field. And I think there was, a, there was a bunch of, so basically it was a video they, they obviously they're using cameras in the stadium and they're tracking every player, right? They know who every player is. They're tracking all of their movements or position throughout the game from several locations, right? With these cameras in the, in the field. And a lot of the people were like, wow, this is really incredible because it's all happening in real time. And a lot of the comments were like, yeah, so what? Right. And, and, what you take it from here because to me there there are implications here uh, uh like we said we don't what's the fan experience what if the fan experience is to be on the field right yeah so for for the we'll call it the metaverse kind of discussion right now this kind of hawkeye mentality of cameras everywhere in the stadium that's changing how you view sports how you engage with fans how fans engage with each other our fans engage with players like you want to sit in the dugout well technology is going to let you do that and experience how players engage in the dugout right i'm a big soccer fan um my son plays for sporting kansas city in the academy and one of the things that you know i always want to watch a game from behind the goal because i i see the field differently and i have a experience that way so but maybe I can't get there because of timing and price and whatever. But if I want to watch the game on my TV because it's somewhere else in the world, World Cup is coming, right? If this technology moves in the way we think it's going to move, you could turn on your TV and literally rotate like with your mouse where you want to watch the game from and anytime you want to watch it, right? I think for NFL fans, the thing that everybody's been wanting to do is be in the helmet, right, of the quarterback. And see what they see. You know, you see it third person kind of behind the scenes sometimes, but the technology is getting to the point where you're going to be in the helmet and seeing 
what's going to happen. I think and you the, could put on the haptic vest and you could actually get tackled in your living room. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to go. It's like the, the, <laughs> the gaming industry, which we also do a lot of, uh, of esports and gaming stuff is there are those um, vests you can feel being shot. Right. Which is really interesting. Uh, the sound vest or whatever. But if you put that on, right. And you play a video game is one way, but if you put it on and, and want to experience what it feels like to get hit by a linebacker. No, thanks. <laughs> I think, my question is, would you sign up for it right once? Right. Right. Did you, it's like, you go bungee jumping. I do it one time. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I think the technology is, is evolving so quickly. I mean, at a rate that it's very hard for a person like me in the industry to stay up with sometimes because it's, it's a lot of it is smoking and, and dagger kind of stuff. Like it, it, what is reality of, of the technology anymore? Like, is it, is it really offering what it says it's going to offer? Right. That that kind of camera technology is moving so quickly because of the metaverse. It's it's evolving so quickly because you've got a partnership of how you can experience that world there. Uh, I think uh, the Syria soccer league just signed some two or three year deal where all their games are in the metaverse in this kind of environmental like watching experience, which is kind of interesting to think about. Um, I know that. Um, uh, was it Manchester city? I think just assigned a, a metaverse deal uh, with Sony. And so like you're seeing a lot of these teams kind of evolve that way. And so what it affects, what it happens to us is that our stadiums are places that we designed for the fan experience now is an experience in two worlds, basically. Right. Not only from a financial standpoint, but from just a design standpoint is like, how do you, how do you design something that's going to be built in reality? in real world and then in a mixed reality, right? Because the way that you can use a stadium or the limits of real world construction are now really thrown out in a, a metaverse environment where you can now design anything you want for any kind of fan experience. Right. This reminds me of, um, I, I was just on that in an airplane and I, over my, Looking into somebody else's uh, iPhone, they were watching uh, what was that VR movie Spielberg did? Not VR movie, but what's the name of it? Where Ready Player One, and uh, right, it's like this is the mix of the real world and the virtual world, and this is why I think there are parallels to movie studios, right? Just because they can build anything, they can make anything happen, and now that's coming to real world experiences for real people it at real events and and you might go to a physical stadium and have one experience and you might go into a virtual or a, a metaverse uh, experience and have a completely different experience and they're both totally viable right like they're both completely viable so and it depends on the kind of fan you are and what the situation is and how far you've got to travel and like you might choose one over the other but it doesn't mean that one is better than the other they're kind of both doing their own thing but the content, like the main focus of the content is, is the game. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that the, the event, right. And I'm going to use that word over the go. game because That's better. the, I look at, um, I'm going to go back to the field of dreams thing, right. Is if, if there's technology that's going to change and let's say that you were at the field of dreams and you were playing catch. Right? That's way different than yeah, watching the game. Yeah, that's a way, to, probably a way, more meaningful experience. More meaningful, right? Like yeah. my father passed away a few years back, and 
let's say I want to play catch with my dad, right? To build that experience into that moment or to have cameras out there that recorded that moment. And you could go back and experience that, right? I think many people would pay for that because it brings you to a time of joy, right? And whether you're going to a ballpark, whether you're going to NFL game, whether you're going to, I don't care, your kid's game, right? It doesn't matter what the event is. My daughter is a dancer. The way that you could experience dance is a great example, right? Like you watch it from a distance, right? But what if you could be in it, right? I just think that there's a whole opportunity here for how you experience events. We were going to go to the Blue Man Group here in Kansas City over the weekend, but it was just too hot. I always look at that. The Blue paint Man just group. wouldn't stay on. No, it would come right <laughs> off, right? Um, but I, I look at like that kind of like concert, right? Is like it's an event. We put on concerts. We put on all these kind of things. Where you sit drives your experience. Kentucky Derby, something else we've done in the past, right? I think what's funny is that if you sit in the stands. And then you sit on the infield. There are two distinctly different experiences that you get, right? What if you could watch a horse race from the horse? Like whole different discussion. Right, right. Right? And feel it too, yeah, right? That's so interesting. So I think that we're, we're in, uh, I think, you know, we talked about the, the golden age of, of architecture years ago, right? And the, uh, some, some have their own opinion of when that was. Right. I think we're in a very interesting age of technology and how it applies to how we experience our our own realities, right? Coming forward. And and that can be at games, it could be at home, it could be whatever. And I think COVID, as bad as it was, it really opened the door to say the word no was like, Oh, we can't do that, we can't do that, we can't do that. Now it's like, well, we did it. Now what else can we do? And I think that's really cool right now. Let's let's get back to this idea of starting with the end in mind, right? So give us a, give us a an overview of an event like you're talking about, like the this you know the SoFi Stadium event, or what what you're involved with uh, from kind of soup to nuts in that whole situation as a practice, and then I want to talk take it from there and and like go back into the office and then kind of you also showed an example of like kind of pre-visualizing the stadium walking around out on the, the out in a dirt lot with iPads and stuff like that. Like th- these are two different things, but I kind of want to give give the audience a sense of not a day in the life, but maybe months in the life of Jason, right? At Populous. Yeah. So for me, you know, our, our event practice, they get involved basically from the time that they want to start doing the, they call it the overlay, right? It's the, the the preliminary design process about how big is the event? Where is the event going to be hosted? What's the stadium it's in? Um, what's the security perimeter? Like basically they set the tone and they work their way in, you know, from with all the stakeholders. And then it moves into this, the seats and it just, there's, there's a whole lot of design involved to make sure you're supporting the the fan experience and the security aspect of it, right? And then the, the revenue growth of it um, for our clients. That That is sometimes very short, sometimes very long. You know, uh, FIFA, World Cup, and Olympics, those can be years in the making in terms of how they're 
how they're designed and built. But for a standard event for us, let's call it Final Force Rule, um, or not a standard, but like I'll stay in ones that are recent, right? You know, probably a team um, of probably 10 to 15 people of designers. And those are architects. Those are, um, most of them are architects or have a background in architecture because you have to speak the language because you're basically doing a, a, a temporary construction. Design, design build basically is a, another term for it, but temporary. Um, and you're out there on the boots on the ground and you are working with the client, figuring out logistics of every moving piece that has to come onto the site. And if you go to a normal game, you're going to see all the trucks and trailers and that kind of stuff. Then multiply that in tents by like 50 times, right? In terms of what you have to deal with and the different kinds of fans that, that are coming to that event. You have a very high level VIP and you have, you know, a guy who walked in off the street and is going to buy a ticket, right? Like there's a very large gap there. And you got to design for all the experiences, all the security, all the entry points, all of that, and the time it takes you to get in. So what we're finding is that people aren't coming to the event for the event first and foremost. There's a lot of people that come for the party, right? And I live in Kansas City, and we love our Chiefs fans, right? But we also love our pregame. We tailgate like nobody's business, right? And you have to come hours before the game to get set up and get a spot and do that kind of stuff. That's kind of happening in the, the sports event world is that people are coming to the pre-event outside the event. Right. And there's a party there um, and you have a different experience and then you kind of work your way into the game. It's no longer you come, you enter, you go to the game. It's you, you, it's like a, uh, it's like a story, right? You experience as you walk through the, the thing into the game. That all takes, the design stuff takes months, right? Sometimes years. And then you got to get into the, the physical boots on the ground construction. That takes probably 45 days to build it. You have a game on that day. For and one, you have one event. One event, yeah. right? So Final Four is three games in one stadium. Super Bowl, one game, one day. And then you tear it down. And that takes probably a week, which is crazy and mind bending. Like it takes so long to build it. And then you have the game, which by the way, is like the most awesome moment of your life to be in the game. And people think, oh, you get to work the event. You don't get to see the event, (laughs) right? Where are you? Where are you when the event happens? (laughs) So I, so there's two, two Super Bowls I've worked. I got to work in all aspects. I got to work out in the parking lot. I got to work in the VIP lot. I got to work in the concourse. I got to work on the field for halftime show. Um, then I got to work post game with the fan experience and the award ceremony. Um, so I got to work like all of it, um, which is also a very long day and a very emotional day. Like just your body is like, you don't really know what you can, your body can take. And at the end of the day, you want to cut your feet off. I mean, your feet hurt. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that, that experience, right. From design to construction to day of, to tear down, to go home. The experiences that we have as a team and the experiences that fans have, like we, we want to make sure that their experiences are such an awesome moment, right. We have to make sure that it happens. Um, Now, from my point of the technologist as part of this company, 
I kind of get to have like the best of all the worlds because I get to sit back and see what they're trying to do. I get to ask them lots of questions, you know, and say, okay, well, what is, let's, let's get out of the technology. Let's sketch it. You know, let's figure out what your end game is. And then we basically say, okay, well, your real problem isn't this, it's this. And that's kind of my, the beauty of, of having, and I go back to it. If you can't communicate to people, it doesn't really work. And I think that's where I get to, to talk with people. You know, I've taken the, the standpoint in, in my practice and in the way that I work, whether it's here or anybody else, you, you, you're better off to listen first, speak second, because you, you're willing to learn what is going on. Like they're in that role all day, every day. And they're going to know way more about the issues than I am. But if you listen to a couple of them talk about what the issue is that they think it is, then you listen to the client or listen to the fan or whatever it may be, you know, you kind of shake the tree a little bit and you figure out what the real issue is, whether it's technology, whether it's process, whether it's people, whatever it is, and then you solve for that need in that moment. There's always going to be new needs. Um, and that's the cool thing about my role with the event team and the design build team. Um, and the architecture team is that it doesn't really evolve for me. It's the same way for every practice in our firm is that you have to talk, you have to listen and you solve that solve may be in the moment that solve may be, I have no idea how to solve your thing right now, but you have to make sure you follow people and say, look, here are two or three options based on our conversation. Here's how it's going to look. Here's how it's going to work. Here's how the experience is going to be. You pick the right one for you guys, but at least I've given you more than you had before or a solution or an opportunity for a solution. They don't always work out, but they at least move forward. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. In this podcast, I talk a lot about all the realities with my guests, you know, mixed reality, augmented reality, virtual reality, all the realities. And I've got a new message for you from my friends at Avail. Let's talk about the new reality, which is that content, as I've talked about in the previous message from them, both wants and needs to live everywhere. Long gone are the days of saving files to your local hard drive or to a single on-premises server. In order to solve remote collaboration, information has moved to the edge. The cloud is king. And the number of cloud services out there dictate that the number of storage locations will continue to grow dramatically. Where do you store your files? BIM 360, OneDrive, SharePoint, Box, Dropbox, AWS, Azure. Chances are you probably save them in some weird combination of those that I just mentioned and more. Well, here's the point of this message. Avail hides the complexity of where content and information resides. What file to use used to be your biggest concern. Now it's where do all those files live. Avail takes where out of the equation, which means that with Avail, you can actually find your mission critical and not so critical files too, right when you need them. Avail helps get you the information you need faster. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. And now let's get back to our conversation. So I, I do want to get to the part where we kind of talk about you, your concern for the experience that your staff has using the technology to deliver the projects. But before we go there, I wanted to get a little bit more into this. 
like give us an idea of what the kinds of things you're designing to solve for at an event like this. You've talked a little bit of you've touched a little bit of 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 a bunch which is like security the like that starts at the perimeter. Just give us an idea of what it's like to design for an event because designing a building is one thing but designing how people are going to use it for one day is is it was kind of mind-blowing to hear from you what that was like. Yeah, so from the aspect of of what different things, right? So we've got security, we've got the fan facing piece. We have we have what they call ambassadors, which is basically people that help you find your way to your seat, right? Those are just like it's it's not just a sign, it's somebody with a sign to help you talk to you, right? Um we have to design for all of these concessions, food, tents, beverage. Like there are so many different things that we have to design four and they're some of them are the same some of them are very different you know um and that's where the pivot comes into play right that word again is that uh you're presented with new challenges at every single location and how you do that from a brand and activation graphics point of view like this the way you you react to a sign to how to get to your chair we even design for that like we have a whole team and that's part of the thing that I did this past year, two years. And I really love it is our signage and graphics team here. Our brand and wayfinding are amazing. They are awesome. And we do things different um, than I think I've seen a lot of other firms do it. But what I love is about the, the you go into a stadium that we didn't design. Right. And you've got to figure out for a one game, how to get people to seats that don't exist. First of all, Right. And they're labeled differently. What does right? that mean? Seats that don't exist. So we may take out. So Final Four is a great example. So Final Four happens in an NFL stadium. Right. So you got a basketball court in an NFL stadium. The NCAA, if you look at the game, the seating bowl is very different than it is when you watch a football game. So they bring in like 12,000 new seats. Right. That don't exist in the normal game. And so that's when we're talking about that seat number isn't ever there for just that one game. Right. And so how do you take a wayfinding experience? And I use that word very importantly, is that the graphic and wayfinding on the wall can be a great experience or a very frustrating experience of how you get around a stadium. Right. And so we had to go in and we had to cover up all the signs in all the stadiums that we do for the event practice, because you got to rebrand them right for that event. But you also have to make sure that you not only make them look good, but you have to make sure they're understandable and people get to where they're going to go. And I've gotten to be on that team the last two years and I love it. I have met some of the coolest people in the world from all over the world. Um, we had a guy from Wembley that was on our team last year in the, in the, the Super Bowl team. Um, I had a guy from Germany who was on our, our signage team. I mean, you just make so many friends that um, you look forward to the next event to be like, oh, here we go, right? Like you have your team, you're like, this is ready to go, right? But that experience for us, right, is friends. But now you've got experience, you've got to all pull together and make this brand activation experience. And you, you talked about it before. It's like, we do stadiums that were ours. We do stadiums that aren't ours. We do stadiums that didn't even exist except for that game and they were gone, which is a whole other discussion, right? But that that's part of it. Right. And then you get into the, 
the other pieces of design. You have to design um, how you get broadcasters in. You have to design potentially even a new, they call it um, the a compound for where the security team is going to sit and watch the game and, and have a conversation. Like that's one you've got to design for, I don't even remember how many media outlets that attend. Right. We, <laughs> I think in Tampa, we had so many different media outlets cause it was the first real big game during COVID for Super Bowl that we had the outside like roundabouts for like the big ramps. We had to design media outlets to sit out there on booths that were raised up that they could see from there because there wasn't enough space. And so that's like very interesting, like design for an event. You use whatever part of the stadium you can, however you can. I think when I was doing my technology walkthroughs, we had like this um, open, it's like an open bar area. It was like a little like, I don't know, lounge. And I went there like before the game, did my technology stuff. I came back the week of the game to get ready. And there was like a whole new temporary construction built inside of this, this bar that didn't exist 30 days ago. And I was like, where did that come from? You know, and so it's it's interesting to see how the the space is utilized normally, and then how we utilize it for a game. It's an evolving door, basically. It's just very awesome. And the one thing that you didn't mention there that I think you know it's the the players, right? The team, that the whole experience that they have of getting into the facility for that day, and there, there's a whole layer to their. It's got to be the best day in the world for them too. Yeah, the the player experience of how to design a locker per team and whether you use even a locker for it. And some like you have some places that you have to make new locker rooms because the locker rooms that are required for those players don't exist. Right. So you may have to build new locker rooms and that's kind of cool, you know, and then halftime show like pregame, postgame, halftime show, like all of those things we design with people because those things have to happen in the event. I get to then, I get to work on um, development for the NFL for security stuff. My counterpart, Alex Callen, she got to work on some stuff for VIP and how we, we help with the VIP access. Like, so we don't only do the, the design of the event, but we also develop software for the event for our clients, which is a whole nother discussion. Like we, that's where I think it's awesome is that, based on the evolution of our people and their passions, we reach out to people and say, Hey, look, we noticed that you have shown some interest in this. Would you be willing to do X? And, um, because we talk to people and have different conversations we see like they're passionate about something. And so we have to make sure I have to make sure that I have, I have an opportunity to elevate that employee or that, that whoever to be like, Hey, you, you're doing great in this area, but I've seen you do this and I elevate them through conversations with leadership or whatever it is, because your path is never clear, right? It, it doesn't, it's never a one track pony. I'm a great example of that. I've gone down many tracks, right? All because my experiences of what I've been asked to do or the conversations I've had have moved that. And I think we have to be more open to that is that we have to be able to be willing to listen to people more and say, Hey, look, I want to do X or I want to do Y. I didn't know you could do that. Right. And I think there's a lot of people in a lot of companies 
in a lot of support roles that have, I think, knowledge like me or passions like me that I think other companies need to start to listen to and evolve because if they don't, they're, they're missing out on, I think, really good people. Yeah. You mentioned elevate, I think advocate, right? Like you're advocating for them because you can become a conduit for their, their talents to be seen by other people. And, and that is so important. And I think so many people are missing out because they can't easily identify an advocate for them or they don't have it even because they don't exist. Right. And, and it makes it very hard to end up doing, having the opportunities like the ones you're talking about. You, you mentioned to me at, in another conversation about writing code to solve a problem that it was like, we're, and, and so just to give an example of the kind of like actual way that you went about solving, can you tell that story? Yeah. So uh, code writing kind of spun for us, which we don't have any dedicated developers in our firm right now, right? I, I think the code that we have to use is so vast, it's hard to have any expertise in one area. But what happened during COVID was we had to solve our own problems for code issues, like code writing to solve problems, right? For technology, whether it was a Microsoft or, or COVID processes or whatever it is. And so I was like, they came to me and they said, hey, would you be willing to like research this and maybe start writing code? And I was like, Sure. Like, and nothing else better to do. <laughs> so um, myself and Alex and a couple of us started kind of diving into it. And we started seeing there was some value in the low code stuff, like the quick turnaround on what you can do with small improvements. I think this is really important is that people try and change the world with process. 1% for 100 people at a practice or 1% for 800 people in a practice is a monumental improvement in, in the bigger grand scheme of things. And so that's what we've been trying to focus on with our code development is I'm not trying to solve design. I'm not trying to solve the big stuff. The big stuff is a slow moving monkey and it just doesn't move. Right. And so we focused on the, I think the processes of our code writing is around how does it have the biggest impact in the most amount of people in the smallest way? Because what we hear from people is I don't want more tech. I think I'm hearing that. I heard it at Built. I've heard it at a lot of places I've worked and a lot of friends I have in every, in every industry is that what happens is people throw new tech at them and the people who have to use it get frustrated. I think one of our employees here, Jeff Funovitz, said it best to me recently. He's like, you know what? I got out of school. The thing that I had to learn how to do was sharpen a pencil, Jason. He goes, I had seven lead types. And I had to sharpen. I'm like, yeah, I know. I used to do it too. I go, but we've kind of lost sight on what we've been asking people to learn, right? Is that when you came out of school, you had to be able to sketch and design, right? And then it moved into CAD. And then it moved into SketchUp and Rhino. And then it moved into Revit. And now it's moved into 50 softwares that when you go to a new company, you got to learn within like a few months. And is that helping anybody? Uh, is tech being sold and bought because the new shiny thing on the shelf or is it being developed to help? And I think that's where I think our industry as a whole, we've got to solve that. I think that there's a lot of things and I can go on a tangent here, but there are a lot of things that a lot of software companies want to sell you, but are they really helping you solve the problem that you have? Are they helping solve the industry's problems? How do we do that? Because to me, they're, you're, you're right. And I, I do think they are trying to help. And it, 
I, what I like about all of these companies, you know, and we could name off as many as we could, right? You know, there's so many that are there's they've got their lane defined and they're trying to build the best thing for that lane versus kind of what everybody feels like, you know, the Autodesk, the the Archicads, all all the different companies that are out there who tried to make the the one thing for everybody, right? Um, but they're also so hard to move those ships. They're so big. Um, that we're still stuck in a 2D output world and not to mention the outside influence of insurance and contracts and regulations and permitting and agencies and all these things, right? I mean, there's, they're, they're all influences on the tools that we still continue to use. So how do I can, I, I mean, I'm just curious what, if you've thought about this. Oh, a hundred percent. So I've got um, an effort that I'm working on for our practice, but in general, like to solve our AEC industry issues that we have from design to delivery to a city software works up into a certain point, And then it all dies at the same hill. It dies at a city process because I mean, take a, take a moment in time and look at our sheets that we have to print over 75 years. There has never been a new sheet size that we have to basically print to. So if we haven't evolved that mechanism of paper in its functional size, we're never, ever, ever going to solve a delivery issue. I think COVID has opened the door for some cities to say, we're going to now offer digital. But the sheets are still the same. Yeah. The sheets are still the same, yeah. right? And by doing digital, all it does is people stop printing paper in their office and they make more digital sheets, which means they've actually done more work, right? And I've been telling people here in our practice is like, hey, do you do you know how much more work you've done? Like comparably, like the number of sheets, like a count for a younger employee who never really produced a set of drawings in our practice or a practice anywhere. They don't really understand the, the thickness of what 350 sheets is. <laughs> Absolutely not. Right. right? It's a scroll wheel on their mouse, right? It doesn't, it's, it's just not it's the a same. scroll in a wheel and they look at it. It's a picture and they zoom in and out. And I think that's something that we need to start thinking about is, and when you talk to software companies, um, Autodesk, Rhino, SketchUp, it doesn't really matter, right? The delivery of the product is never going to change until the city is willing to work with us as a practice. I mean, AIA, and the contractors talk about BIM in a light that like the client hears as a shiny object and they put it in a contract and it doesn't really help anyone. It doesn't help them. It doesn't help us. It doesn't, doesn't do anything better. Right. If we, if we just kind of like put people in a room, you know, and, and didn't really talk about an initiative initiatives are where things go to die. Right. <laughs> they are. Um, what's funny is that we've been, we've been shifting the word initiative in our practice to charrette. And if we go into a session to try and solve a problem from a design process, you go into a charrette, you come out of it and you end up with some sort of action. It's no different than initiative in change. If you put people in a room and you do a design charrette on a problem, right? Whether it's process, whatever it is, nine times out of 10, the conversations are very different. You're not sitting around a table, you're up moving around. I think those same kind of ideas need to start happening at a delivery method methodology, right? 
whether it's a contractor or an owner. And I think it would be very easy to change the the industry as a whole. If you got, and it could take a small building, it could take a big building. It doesn't really matter. Right. But it, it requires an owner, a contractor, the design staff and the city to all agree that that thing is a better thing. I heard that that happened with the Lucas museum in LA. I'm not, don't quote me. It on did that. a little bit. Yeah. It, it was, it was a digital delivery. Yes. I don't think that the way it was being done is, is how I think every project could do it. I think that there could very easily be a way that you could solve probably 99.9% of the projects in the world, right? As a delivery method, let's call it in the Americas as a minimum, right? You could probably change 90% of them, right? Now, not every contractor has the technology to do digital. They don't, which is fine. But I think that we get so hung up on printing something the way that we used to print it that you can print for the need. So if you're just, if you're building out something, right? Yeah, just in time, on demand, right? That, that's on demand printing, right? right? Like, what is it, the area you're focused on and print that thing? But also the technology of what printers are are changing. Like, this is one of the cool things about our, our my research is there's a company called Dusty Robotics. You've heard of them? Yeah. They're they're amazing. They're, that that kind of technology is, I think, going to change how we look at construction documents and design collaboration with clients. To rent out a, an open you know, storage unit, 60 by 60, 200 by 200, it doesn't really matter, right? Warehouse for a day. And you can print on that concrete and your client. Everybody's like, holy crap. Right. <laughs> Everyone's like, well, why didn't you just do a VR? Well, one, VR doesn't all let you really do what you need to do. And sometimes people don't do well with VR on their head, right? The, the way that their brain reacts to it, it makes them sick or whatever. So take that out of the, the conversation, right? And if you put all 10 people in a room and you can physically walk through it and make comments and, and, and sketch, and then you make those design changes and you basically wipe that ink off and you reprint the next day and you come back and you're like, yep, that's what I want to do. The amount of money that that kind of process can save a client from design changes because they didn't really understand what they were getting, right? It saves a contractor, it saves an architect, it saves a, a, an engineering firm from RFIs, change orders, whatever it is, right? Like yeah, facilitating decision making, right? Dude, it yeah. is going to change it. Yeah. Um, and I saw like this random, uh, I wish I remember their name or company, but it was a residential firm. They took it to the next level and they basically put projected cameras. I saw that. And yeah, and they're. They're doing some interesting stuff. That's cool. um, yeah, really cool. And so I think that's kind of like where I look at like an event project is like what we're trying to build there doesn't exist, right? How do you project into a space or design a space for a client who doesn't normally live in that building? And that event has to have a very specific need to it, right? I think of it as a that process can work anywhere. Renovation, design-led, design-build, um, stadiums. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? Um, convention centers, all that kind of stuff. Knowing what's going to be laid out in front of you before it actually happens, you can solve a lot of problems. And I think that's where I, where I get to the, is that it's a problem solving tool. And it's about communication and it's about experience, right? Like, and, and having all the players 
there to experience it together is just uh, when that conversation begins at that point for them, things are going to change, no doubt. But at the same time, it's it's visceral. It's right there. So it's different than looking at a drawing on a screen for sure. Well, that was that that experience happened for us is that we had that company in and we printed on our concrete here in the office and we had 50 people, all different experience levels in the the charrette space, right? What was interesting is that the key word was said in the meeting. It was like, this is a DD set, right? And you had practice leaders that kind of like didn't really grab onto that until it was all done because it was laying out all the duck work, everything right for this suite. Basically it was a hotel suite that we used as an example. And, um, we get done, we print it off and the printer leaves and we start having conversations and some of our leadership were like, Hey, why are we showing duck work and all this kind of stuff? If this is a DD set of drawings, we said, well, that's what our projects are requiring us to do now. I think this is a key component for every firm out there is that you, those that are leading, right. Haven't always used the, the new tech right? Or haven't had to deliver with that tech or that process or that delivery method. Probably never have. Yeah. Never have. Right. Right. And so for them to agree to a new thing that a contractor wants to use or a client wants to use, um, this is where I come in or people like myself or even very talented technologists, technologists at an architectural level should be able to raise their hand and say, hang on a second. That actually may create more work. It actually may create it may, it may be the shiny object on the wall, but it doesn't help us. It just creates more work or more risk. And that's where we have to basically be, be very careful is that all the new things in the building or all the new shiny objects are out there. Do they create more risk or less risk? I, I want to wrap up the thread on the, uh, you know, changing the outcomes about the delivery uh, and just say that, you know, I think it kind of ties in parallel to things you were saying earlier, which was, we have to have a seat at the table as architects because we're problem solvers and we can help that outcome be better because we can see it from so many different perspectives. And so if you do invite the right people and have that conversation, it's kind of like you being invited to the owner table, the client table, the digital table, the practice table. It's the same kind of idea, which is we're problem solvers, right? And and we can't change the outcome if we don't get all the right people together and actually talk about the outcome that we want to achieve so that we can then reverse engineer it and get there, right? Like, seems to me that's the theme of the episode. But it, it really is about getting the problem solvers at the table. And then it doesn't have to be for the whole profession. It can just be for one project with one jurisdiction, with one set of officials and and like start there, right? Because then you celebrate that small win. Right. And you iterate on it and you move on to the next one. And and then you get to point at that one and everybody sees it was a successful example. But you have to be proactive in that sense. Yeah, you you have to be. Um, I think, look. Um, there are things that you do, right, and you know, they're probably not all, all going to work out. Right. But you have to be willing to put your hand up and say. We have to do better. This is broken. Can we just all admit that this is broken? <laughs> yeah. And, and you can say it's broken for lots of different reasons. Can we say it's broken because of how technology sells itself, right? As, as, it, as it's a solving the world's 
economical problems, right? Like there's lots of reasons why things don't work and there's lots of reasons why things do work. I think you have to be okay and be willing to make mistakes and learn from them. And that's one of the things that I get to kind of, it sounds good and bad, right? It's like in my research and my testing, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to like, it didn't always work out like I thought it was going to work out. Like I'm like, Ooh, that's a cool thing. I'm going to go try that with the goal that's like not existing. And then you come back and you're like, mm, that's not what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. Right. Dude, this is science. That, that's exactly how science works. <laughs> and so for me, from a, from a technology point of view is like, I have to take a science approach to it. Right. Is like test and test and re- refine all the way through it. Right. And then, but at a very fast pace. Right. Because when I speak up and say something, they look to me and say, okay, well, he's not talking just because he's talking. He's talking because he knows that there's something we need to be doing or there's something in the environment or in the market or there's a process that has already been tested and vetted and we know it will work. Um, whether it's an architecture, whether it's an event, whether it's in design, led design build, whatever it is, whether it's you know, design facing or client facing, I have to sit in that realm with the confidence to know that I've done enough research that when I put my hand up, you know, I'm, I'm going to be heard for the right reason. Well, I want to start wrapping this up. I know you've been super gracious with your time. The The last thing, I guess, I want to get back to what we talked about earlier that we said we teased, uh, which was your staff's enjoyment, let's just call it that, of using the tech to deliver. Um, and and I know that that's important to you, right? It's It's, you don't want your staff feeling like they're showing up to a fight every day. Right. And so I know a lot of the research that you do is trying to find more enjoyable ways to do things, better ways to do things. There's a lot of ways to say that, but just give us, give us kind of the backstory to that because, you know, in the end, the tech is a means to the end. It is not the reason we do what we do, but that also applies to the people who use it to deliver the project, not just the end user. Right. So just give us a, some, a window into that world. So for our staff, you know, they, they have to deal and wear many, many hats and they ask me for help and I listen. And that's the biggest thing is like the, the conversations and the, what they have to use and why they have to use it. It has to be enjoyable for them because if they have to use a piece of software that is antiquated and it's, um, 25 clicks and it, it, it's just hard, right. But they have to do it because of contract negotiations or whatever else, right. My, I feel like I would love to be able to take that process. And this is where I, I look at our employees and I, they're my friends, right? They're my family. If I can do something in the way that our staff, my staff, um, the technology team, anyone in our practice, if I can give them back 10 minutes a day, that's 10 minutes with their family at home. They can go home to earlier. That is our biggest focus is to help them be able to not stay here hours on end to do processes that are old, right? Because of antiquated contract deliverables, right? My whole focus for these, my family here, you know, and and our company is to make sure that they can go home with uh, an enjoyable day, go back to their family at a reasonable time and and deliver the best and highest quality work we can. And that's how I look at technology for 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 our people is that it's there for a reason. It's not the only reason tech isn't going to solve every problem for them, but anything that I can do, whether it's process technology, you know, custom tools, it doesn't really matter. Right. Um, 
it's all about them. It's all about them being able to go home and have go in and come to work, wanting to come to work remote or in person. Right. And saying, look, I enjoy collaboration. I enjoy the design process. I enjoy architecture. I enjoy the event effort. Like they're hard already (laughs) to do those jobs. We don't want to make the technology have to be a burden on them or a process a burden. And so I, my whole passion is faster, better, stronger, right? But it's all about the people and they have to be willing to want to use it. Um, And if they see value in it, our stuff gets used all the time. If there's no value in it, it doesn't get used no matter who it is. But I think the most important thing and the passion for me is that, that people can go home with their families because we built something better for them. That's all. So what are some examples just off the top of your head that how you've, how you've achieved that? It's silly. It's like, you know, well, that's the, industry. the thing, right? A lot of them are just <laughs> silly little things. Well, take, take the, like we were talking about the industry earlier, right? Is like, okay, we've, the industry has built design tools hand over fist for years, right? But no one's ever really focused on interiors. Like no one's ever really built interior design tools. They built furniture tools, but not interior entourage libraries, right? Yeah. They built entourage libraries. They built furniture design, layout tools, all that kind of stuff. Right. But never really interior design process tools. Right. And we have some things here at the practice that we've built by listening to what they have to do and how they deliver it that have made the simplest tasks, millwork design, interior elevation processes, just documentation things that are required, but because the out of the box tech doesn't exist or no third party company has really thought about the value and how many interior design architects there are, like where's the value to that, right? They, they look at the, like, it's huge. It's massive, right? Brand activation. Like there was a process that our team was doing that took them three weeks in the production process through a simple conversation and listening to the real issues. We took that down to three hours. And when you talk about the number of signs in our projects, that's huge. Right. And so that to me makes me feel good when you've got a person who has a want, has a need, has an issue. And it's the simplest thing in the world that should have been solved by the technology that exists because it should just be built into it because it just makes sense, but it doesn't exist or no one's ever thought about it. But there's a disconnect between the people who make the the tech, the software and the people who do the work, right? And so that's an important point is that a lot of the software companies when they started, they're really good because they're listening to the people that buy their product. Like that's where I think a lot of the, these uh, startup firms are awesome is they listen to the people who are buying the product. When you get to a certain point, there are a lot of firms that listen to their investors and you lose sight of who's really using and buying your tool. Yeah. The investor doesn't mean that they're a, a user. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. If, if you're an investor in a product, you should be asking for your development firm to listen to the buyer of the product. You'll get more money in the long run. Right. Um, and that's kind of where I've taken my, my step is, is I have a lot of partner relationships in the startup firms, in the design firms and the tech firms, because there are a lot of really amazing design, uh, developers 
I mean, there are some people who are popping up right now on the, on the industry who are just one-off individuals who are just like F the industry and they're doing some cool stuff because they're like, I'm tired of waiting for it. And if they had a, if they had the right backer, the right partner, the right exposure, they would be able to make some serious changes. Um, and I think that's where as an architectural practice, I think a lot of the AEC leaders, the, the, the firms, I would like to see there's a part where there's a competitive edge, right? And some of the things you do, and there's a thing where it's just industry practice that we should all be able to come together and say, this has to change at the product level, not the delivery of it, but just the product and the usage, the the tool, right? And I, there's some things that have tried to happen and they didn't really, they didn't shake out very well. But I, my passion is for our people. It's, it's the areas that have been kind of forgotten about sometimes, right? Uh, interiors is one of them. Not that we didn't forget about them, but the, but the, the software industry has forgotten about them. And there are so many people across the world that do those processes that you feel bad for them. Well, once you reach some kind of market saturation, you just stop listening because you're looking for another market, right? Who has a completely different set of things that are now getting listened to, right? Because they're building that, actively building that. And the, the old audience is, you know, just being nursed along at that point. I, I think, uh, you know, just trying to put an idea of you guys solving that problem for your interior designers, which makes them happier, you know, just to put it in an easy way. Um, but the value that that delivers to the client and the, you know, it's, it's funny because that, that the term ROI comes to mind, you can't actually put a number on it. Right. But it's, but the ROI on the value that has happened that right there to the through the whole process is enormous like just you're talking about saving hours it's not just about saving hours right it's way bigger than that because then you talk about the actual event that happens and the people who have that experience like again you can't put a number to the roi but you, what you're doing is creating a relationship with the client because of a tool that you built for your interior designers that is going to pay dividends for years, right? And that's kind of how you have to frame it when you talk about solving these kinds of minor problems in the in the pipeline, right? It's like these, it, it has humongous implications, but a lot of people who are disconnected from the process, you know, not, not the software vendors, but even in our own practice, they just don't, they just can't see that. And so you have to actually do it and then say, let's have a conversation about what just happened right here. Yeah. I think enormous. the big thing for me is that like, if you take like the interiors group, right. It's like, okay, what am I giving them back? Am I giving them back time with their family? Am I giving them back time to focus on coordination? Am I giving them back time to focus on design? Right. Because we're all wearing more and more hats because we're asked to do, do more and more things, which means that we have less time sometimes to do design because we have all these other things to do. And if in our practice as a design practice, my whole focus is to make sure that design is happening, right? And so if, if little processes can be improved along the way to, to reduce our risk, to improve on our coordination, but get better design at an event level, at an architectural level, at an airport, whatever it is, right, like is the most important thing. And I, I'm going to go back to the airport comment real quick because 
I sat in a, a presentation. This is going back to the comment I made earlier about listening. And it goes back to wayfinding and graphics. Um, and I sat in a presentation in a, an air, it was an airport presentation for materials and how they had an RFP. Um, and this goes back to the technology point for like being at the table, right? They had an RFP to review the materials, not for the people that were in the airport, but for the support animals that were in the airport. And I sat back in my chair and I was like, where is this going? Right? We spend all this time focusing on design for people. But when people can't experience the building because of an of a thing, right? And you have to have a, a companion to help you through that. And that companion is impaired because of reflectivity because of noise, because of all these things. And I hadn't even thought about Sure, that, right. Right? This is and another level. It was, there's another <laughs> level, right? <laughs> yeah. And and it happened to me because I was trying to solve a problem in our firm. And I was like, I know how to do it, right? And I solved it with color in a way that I went back into the future, right? And one of our lead um, senior architects said, I love what you're doing. It makes sense for 99.9% of the people in our firm. And I said, but what about the other person? Because it's me and I'm colorblind. And I felt horrible because I hadn't, it it didn't dawn on me. And and he wasn't mad at me. It was just that I had, I have to start listening more or thinking broader. I think we all do. And I think that the airport conversation and listening to about how that, the light reflectivity for a companion right? The noise of a companion situation, the color for someone who is colorblind, um, all of those things become experiences. And if we're not listening, you're missing. And I think that's what I want to end on today is that you have to be willing to listen to whoever is in the room. Because if you're not listening, you're not solving. Jason, this has been an awesome conversation. So good. I hope I didn't just go all over the place for it, you. It, you did go all over the place, Jason. You should be very ashamed of yourself. This was this was fantastic. <laughs> I, I really appreciate your time today. And so um, I'm going to have links to everything populous, social media-wise. Is there anywhere else you want to send people where they can see what you're doing? Uh, just our website and to our social media accounts is fine. Um, and I'll, I'll double-check with our marketing department if there's anything new. But yeah, I'll send you all those links and we can go forward from there. All right. I appreciate your time, man. This has been fantastic. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.